This is Blue Moon. It's the original fan-made Manchester City podcast. Coming up, we've got news and views from Cities Week. It's your club and this is your show. So the season has paused and attention is turning to the World Cup. I bet you thought you'd heard The Last of Us for a while as well, but we couldn't help but pop up with a surprise special ahead of this rather inconveniently placed international tournament, just when you thought it was safe to open the podcasts app again too. Manchester City should have players representing nine of the 32 nations, but with the turnaround between the end of the season and the start of the World Cup, we're recording this special before the squads have been announced. That's not going to stop us discussing the key talking points around the City players heading to Qatar, though. We've spoken to experts from each of those nine countries to get an insight into what to expect over the next few weeks. I'm David Mooney. For this special one, I'm joined by City fan and journalist with One Football, Dan Burke. Hello, David. How are you doing? I'm not too bad, thanks. Not too bad. Um, I've just called it an inconvenient World Cup there. Mm. Um, just, it's just as it feels like City are really getting in themselves together this season and like really getting into the swing of things. Uh, we've had to pause and we've got to wait now for you know a few weeks before we can, we can start it again. Um, how much of an impact is this World Cup going to have on the domestic season? It's unprecedented. Yeah, it is inconvenient because this is usually the, the time of the, the season when City really start hitting the stride and you know we're, we're in a nice little time title race with Arsenal at the moment. Everything's going well. The results have been good. I mean, what I will say for City is that I don't think I've seen much of a kind of drop off um, in terms of performances, in terms of players having like one eye on the World Cup, you know, pulling yeah. out of challenges or things like that. <laughs> Nobody's still protecting full, themselves, are they? Yeah. yeah, they're still going full throttle. So, you know, fair play to them for that. It's obviously, uh, you know, the, the club the country row hasn't reared its ugly head in City's dressing room yet. But yeah, for the second half of the season, I think it's going to be, you know, very, very weird. I think it's going to be, you know, a lot of fatigue. There's going to be injuries that are going to set in in the second half of the season. I think it's also going to be hard for players to pick themselves up mentally um, after the disappointment of not winning the World Cup and, um, you know, go again in the second half of the season and and, and be sort of thrown straight back into the, the middle of the season, really. So that, uh, that game on, on Boxing Day is going to be fascinating, I think. Yeah. Um, well, let's let's get Guardiola's thoughts before we dive into the World Cup. This is what he said recently uh, about how it could impact the team when the season restarts. I think the the target of all the clubs will be the amount of energy you spend in the training sessions to be f- perfect. So I, I had the feeling that it will be just sauna massage, massage, sauna massage to recover the players, recover the players, recover the players to the next game, next game, next game. So it's crazy. It's a lot of games, a lot for the players. For me, it's not a problem because now I have two weeks off, and after we make a precision small one in in Abu Dhabi, and after I come back here. But for the players, it's you think it's, they- it's, it's, it's it's too much. Is there any possibility that the players who are going to the World Cup can be given any time off in between the season? It depends on it depends on finish. It arrive the finals. It depends. There's no go to through in the group stage. So it depends. But in the first moment, the first idea, I want to give them some days off to refresh a little bit. But in the same time, you have leads uh, around the corner on the first day and after the start, and we need the players back. Have you got a date in your mind that if players go out before that date, they can have a break, and if they go out after that date, they've got to come straight back? I have to see the calendar, the schedule, how finish, and we are start, and I want to talk with the players. Some players don't know, I'm perfect, I want to come back. And now, the, for example, our players go to World Cup, don't play one minute, and the other play all the minutes, and Pep, I'm so exhausted, I need a break, go to a break. So that's why every player will be treated in a special way, different way with the other ones to, to know his feedback, how, how does he feels. 
please give us your backing. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. So it's interesting to know that they'll uh, that they'll kind of do a mini preseason as well in Abu Dhabi ahead of the mm. restart, um, and we're, we're kind of going to get into all of, of of who will be most involved over the next uh, over the rest of this podcast. Um, so let's uh, let's dive into it. Just out of interest, Dan, before we before we do, uh, last time any City players were involved in the World Cup final was uh, was twenty fourteen. There weren't any in uh, in twenty eighteen. It was uh, Zabaleta, Di Michelis, and Aguero off the bench in Argentina's one nil extra time loss to Germany. Uh, can you name the only other player who's played in a World Cup final while they were a City player? Is it uh, Nigel De Jong for it, Netherlands? Yeah. It was, yeah, when he famously uh, karate kicked. Um, <laughs> was it Xabi Alonso? Xabi Alonso, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was uh, that was a that was a World Cup final. That uh, that that it was the first City player in a World Cup final, and he goes and does that. It was uh, yeah, because yeah, I don't think David Silva played in that final, did he? No. No, he didn't. He was a city player at the time, but he didn't play. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So, uh, so let's get into the uh, let's get into who could be in uh, this year's World Cup final. We mentioned uh, three Argentinian former players there. Uh, so let's start in South America. Argentina are among the favourites for the tournament in Qatar. City no longer have such a big contingent from the country in the squad, but Julian Alvarez, who's been making waves in Erling Haaland's absence for City lately, is likely to be involved in some way, shape, or form. We've spoken to journalist Dan Edwards, who's based in Buenos Aires, to find out more about how Argentina will use. Alvarez. He's a useful player for Argentina though, definitely. I think um, if you look at the Argentina national team, he probably has a similar kind of role to what he's been playing at City. Uh, he's not the main man. Argentina have a very settled attack, you know, with the main guys, uh, Lionel Messi and Lautaro Martinez, who have been so good together, really struck up a, a brilliant partnership in the last uh, three or four years um, since that World Cup, in fact, when... Um, you know, obviously Argentina underperformed and and that was the cue to really uh, overhaul the team, take out some of the the guys that have been around for, for a long time, like Aguero, like Machirano, and bring in kind of this new generation. Alvarez is definitely part of that. You can see it. Um, he's not going to be starting every game in, in Quata, but he's going to be featuring a lot because he's a guy who can come off the bench. He can fill any of the three places across the attacking line. Uh, you know, he's not a traditional centre-forward, but he can play down the middle, he can play down the left if Argentina need it. And we've seen in, in the games he's played for Argentina so far, um, you know, he comes in and he gets in the position where he's he's getting chances. He hasn't put a huge amount of them away yet, but he's always there. He's always looking for, for goal. And I think that's going to be his role in, uh, in this World Cup. He's going to be the utility forward. He's going to be the guy that comes in when they need to maybe a little bit more of a spark and and he's going to get chances in in front of the net definitely yeah, it's uh, it's it's it sounds very similar to to what he's been doing at City with uh, with, with City obviously focused on 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 Haaland up uh, up top. Um, what what do you think Alvarez can learn from? I mean, it, it, we've seen he's learning a lot from Haaland. What 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 has he learned, and what can he learn from uh, from a player like Leo Messi? I think all of us, no matter how good we are at football or how bad. You know, in my case, <laughs> we'd all just love to take the field with Messi. He just seems like a player who has so much experience, so much talent, of course. And and you can see in this Argentina team particularly, where it possibly wasn't the case in previous years, he's just taken on this role of father figure, uh, taken these newer stars like uh, Martinez, like Rodrigo de Paul, and like Alvarez just under his wing. And... You can see every time Argentina take the field, it goes both ways. 
Messi is really enjoying playing with these young guys and these young guys live and die for Messi. They're so protective of him, so happy when, when thing go, things go right for him. Specifically, I think uh, what Alvarez show, has shown kind of in his beginnings with River is obviously a hugely talented player, knows where the goal is, but perhaps uh, if you could have one criticism of Alvarez from what we've seen so far, and obviously bearing in mind he's a very young man still and, and he's got his whole career ahead of him, he's tended to be perhaps a little bit streaky. He can you know, go on these runs where he'll score 10 goals in four games or... 12 and 5, um, as he did a couple of times with River. And then he can suddenly go quiet and it doesn't seem to be clicking for him. Uh, maybe just gets a little bit anxious and um, and goes off the boil a bit. And obviously, as we all know, Messi has just shown this consistent brilliance for more than a decade. And, and I think a lot of the reason behind that is that when he's on the pitch, he just keeps his cool head and always knows what he has to do on the pitch and how he needs to do it. And if we're talking about examples, it really doesn't get better than that for um, for a young kid like Alvarez, who, as I say, has the world at his feet. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say that uh, about being streaky as well, because I guess it, it's probably good timing for for Argentina that he's had a couple of City games uh, lately and and has been kind of growing into in, into City's team. Is there any worry about how much football he's played? Because he's he's barely had a break, has he? No, absolutely, um, and. What probably will play in Alvarez's favour is what I said before. He won't be expected to play uh, 90 minutes every game. Uh, if he does come to Quata and he's feeling the strain, he's feeling a little bit off, the, um, a bit out of condition or a bit tired, he he will have that chance to sit out perhaps the first couple of games and, or only appear five minutes or appear when or if Argentina really need him. But by the same token, if these frontline players, the likes of Messi, the likes of Lautaro, the likes of Di Maria, if you know, if they're having their own struggles, they've got someone on the bench in Alvarez who they can absolutely trust to come in, uh, give them a breather and and not um and not suffer a drop off in performance. So I think that's really important for Argentina. They've got the depth in their squad, not just in attack, but uh across the field. My one it's kind of a nagging concern I've had for the last year, really, because I think Argentina are really well set up for the World Cup. Uh, you look at their team and just in terms of balance and having quality in, in every single line of, um, of the pitch, they're probably better than they have been for a, for a long time in that sense. Um, but if there's one position, you'd say depth-wise, they could be struggling. It's just as a, in the lack of an orthodox centre-forward who would play you know, as a direct replacement for Lautaro Martinez if he needed a rest or gets injured, suspended. I don't know if Alvarez is that player. You know, he hasn't been playing that position for City or for Argentina. So if something did happen along those lines, it would be a lot of pressure on him to step up and, you know, and be Argentina's main man up front, definitely more than than anything he's really faced so far in his um, in his short career. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, uh, I have faith in him, I think. As I said, he's a fantastic talent, a fantastic player. And this World Cup definitely is a stage where, you know, you can show people just why City were were so keen to bring him after really a uh, little more than a handful of appearances for River. 
Yeah. Um, just finally then, Dan, uh, obviously with, uh, with with a group looking as it does with Saudi Arabia, uh, Mexico and uh, and Poland in there, um, Argentina, probably favourites for, for, for the group, you'd say. Um, Guardiola has recently said as well uh, that uh, that he's tipping Argentina for, for the tournament. Alvarez has been, uh, as, uh, as, as said that Guardiola gave him a nudge and said that uh, that he's uh, tipping them to come home with a medal. Um, what's the feeling out there at the minute in, uh, in Buenos Aires? Uh, I would describe it as confidence, uh, despite itself. No one wants to get too excited for this World Cup because Argentines tend to be on the superstitious side, and even the fact that you know Argentina are going to, into this game in such good form, uh, I believe that if they win their final friendly before the World Cup, they'll break the record for um, for most uh, unbeaten games by any international team. They'll be on thirty five or thirty six, and and quite a lot of people will be keen to see him just lose that one, so so they're not facing the prospect of um, actually losing that unbeaten record in the World Cup itself. They're in a similar position group-wise as they were four years ago. Um, if you looked at Argentina's group back in 2018, everyone was expecting them to, you know, roll over Iceland, then perhaps get a draw with Croatia, roll over Nigeria, and really be well set to go into the the knockouts. And and as we know. That didn't happen at all. It was it turned into um, to real shambles that World Cup, which was only sort of saved by a very um, dignified defeat to France. Um, so I don't think anyone's going to be taking the group stage for granted, even though a lot of the games are going to be on at eight, nine, ten o'clock in the morning uh, over here. There's really going to be a festive atmosphere about this World Cup. Um, quite excited because after was it 13 years of uh, living in Argentina, I get a spring slash summer World Cup again. So it's going to be brilliant to have a, a World Cup out in the sunshine, you know, working around a few barbecues, um, a few uh, get-togethers with, with some mates. To be honest, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it and I think all of Argentina is, is just, just can't wait for it to get started. If you enjoy the show, please give it a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. So that was Dan Edwards uh, talking about Alvarez and the Argentinian national team. Um, it, it sounds like he's going to be a bit of a bit part player for Argentina, Dan. Uh, what have you made of him uh, for this half of the season at City? Yeah, it's been very impressive. He's, he's settled really well for a young man coming to a new country, um, you know, not speaking the language very well and, and adapting to a new culture. It's been it's been really good. I mean, I think he um, he's, he's going to need a lot of time to, to adapt a bit more. Um, I thought his performance against Leicester when he was he was played up front on his own was um a little bit underwhelming really. It seems like he's he's not quite uh, mastered the art of playing in the Premier League as a lone striker just yet, which is to be expected. That's absolutely fine. I think he's looked a lot better when he's played sort of on the wing or, or up front with Haaland, but the goals he scored, you know, the finishing has been superb. The, the, the goal full against, and finish, uh, yeah. <laughs> the full and finish was was amazing. Uh, Nottingham Forest game, he scored a great goal in that. He scored two great goals in that game, actually. Um, you know, the obvious comparisons with Aguero being being a compatriot of his, and I think there is a there is a similarity to him there. And I think a lot of people looked at Alvarez when City signed him and thought, oh, is this another one of those kind of CFG players who is a a, a talent that we've unearthed from from elsewhere in the world, and he's never really going to see the light of day at City. He's going to be farmed out to Girona or wherever. But I think a lot of people were forgetting that this was quite different. He was playing for River Plate, um, you know, one of the biggest clubs in Argentina. He's used to playing in you know massive games under a lot of pressure and was one of the best strikers in Argentina when we signed him. So he's still only 22. He's got a lot of developing to do, but I think we've got a real, real gem on our hands there. 
Yeah, uh, just on Argentina as well. Guardiola's tipped them for the tournament. Um, obviously, based on absolutely nothing. Uh, would you agree? <laughs> I think they'll be there or thereabouts. I don't think um, defensively they're that strong. Obviously, they've, they've got Messi and and all that lot. You know, Di Maria and, and some great players in attack. Uh, defensively, they've got players like Nicolas Otamendi, though. So you know, that's uh, a bit of a, uh, a bit, could be a bit of a problem for them. I think my money would probably be on Brazil at the moment, but uh, we'll see how it goes when the tournament begins. I guess. We'll come to them a bit later on. Didn't you tip? Didn't you say Nicolas Otamendi had come good though? Was that is that well, not he your did line? come good for City? <laughs> he, he, he did come good for City, and then he went bad again. So you know, <laughs> yeah, you never know, dear. Uh, right. Well, let's stick yeah. with City's new signings uh, for the next part of the show. We're heading to the defence and looking at Manuel Akanji and Switzerland. Uh, since returning to the World Cup in 2006, they've only failed to make the round of 16 once. That was in South Africa in 2010. Meanwhile, the City centre back has slotted right into life at the Etihad since his move. To find out how key he is to his nation, we've spoken to the Swiss football expert Craig King. I think he's very important. I think he's became a really key player over the last few years. He had a fantastic tournament at the Euros in 2020 and he's came really from being a kind of, not a bit part player, but he wasn't always kind of settled in as the, the starting centre-back, but he's really came into that position now and he's one of the key players in the team. Very important to how Switzerland operate on the pitch as well. And um, I think he'll have another Big tournament this, uh, I was going to say this summer, but <laughs> this winter. This winter, because, yeah. Um, yeah um, but yeah, I think it'll be another big tournament for him and he'll, he'll show his quality again. I think he's only improving. We see that he's got the move to Man City and he's just getting better and better, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, obviously City City have been using him at centre-back and at right-back and as, as part of the build-up. Um, is, he, is he a more traditional centre-back with Switzerland? Yeah, definitely. I think that the right-back position is one that he can play. He has played in the past, but it's not really his favourite position. He definitely likes to be on kind of right-sided centre-back. And that is, I would say, where he's played for Switzerland all the time, maybe once or twice that I can remember, where he's maybe featured at right-back. We're quite strong at right-back too, so it's not really a position that we need him for. And as I say, the centre-back is his strongest position. Yeah, I mean, obviously, as well, City are are a team that like to to play through the thirds and like uh, like possession in with the defensive players. Um, is that different to Switzerland, or is Switzerland trying a, a similar sort of thing? And how does how does kind of a Kanji fit into all of that? Yeah, well, Switzerland like to kind of play on the front foot when they can. Obviously, that's not always the case when you come up against some of these bigger international teams. But yeah, a is a good passer to the ball. He's He's quite cautious with his passing, but he's able to distribute the ball to the wings, forward into the midfield, and a lot of the attacks really start with him or at, at the centre-back pairing. So he's very important in that regard. He can carry the ball forward as well, which is important an important aspect for Switzerland. So he has a lot of attributes that really benefit this side and really help build the attacks and kind of Switzerland's style of play. Yeah, um, and of course, um, Switzerland been been very strong in uh, in tournaments recently, and uh, in a group with Brazil, Serbia, and Cameroon, um, they must have they must be quietly confident of getting through the group. Well, I think the minimum expectation for Switzerland now is to get out of the group at the very least. They've made every tournament since twenty fourteen, which is a massive achievement for the country in itself. And they've reached the last 16 every time and then they went one better, of course, last summer when they, they beat France to reach the quarterfinals. So there's 
this group of players that had they've got a lot of kind of experienced players that a lot of the the fans, other fans of other national teams know, but we've also got some young players coming through as well. It's really building towards the last kind of eight years or so. It's kind of built towards what we did last summer, and the fans want the team to build on that again. It's not always that easy because once you get to the last 16, of course, you can draw anyone really. And if you draw one of those big teams, you're kind of in trouble. But Switzerland can compete with anyone, so they'll be expecting to get out of this group. And it's a very familiar group because you've got Brazil in there, Serbia in there, who both of them featured in the 2018 World Cup group that Switzerland were able to to get out of. They, They drew with Brazil back then and they beat Serbia memorably in the last minute. Cameroon's kind of an unknown quantity. I don't even know when the last time they played, if they have played at all. So that one will be interesting. But yeah, they'll be expecting to get out of this group. But I will say it is a tougher group than what 2018 was, in my opinion, just because I believe that Serbia are a better team now. And Brazil, it might be weird to say, but they are also better than what they were in 2018 for me. They, they were obviously good then as well and managed to draw with them. But they seem to be to be flying now and one of the real favourites as they always are. So it's going to be difficult, but this team has proven in the past that they can compete with anyone. So I think there'll, there'll be a real hope and optimism that they can at least get out of the group and then see where the journey takes them, depending on the draw. Email the show through our website, bluemoonpodcast.com. That was Craig King talking about Switzerland's chances at the World Cup. Um, he's another one, Dan uh, Akanji, just like Alvarez, uh, has, has really made a, a pretty decent start to life in the Premier League. Yeah, I've been very, very impressed by him. I mean, I saw him quite a bit when he played for, for Dortmund. I wasn't that keen on him, to be perfectly honest. I thought he was he was a bit erratic, a bit error-prone. Um, and when we signed him, I, I was a bit baffled by it, really. I was I wondered where that had that had come from, what what the point of it was really. You know, at the time I felt City needed a, a proper left back. Um and I and I, I didn't see the sense in signing an, another centre back really. And uh, you know, from from the moment Akanji made his debut against Sevilla, I think he's looked really, really good, really assured. I think he's a player who uh, improves with better players around him, like a lot of players. I think that was perhaps a problem at Dortmund that he the players around him were a bit weaker and and they weren't defended too well as a team and, and leaving him exposed quite a lot. Whereas that hasn't happened so much with City. Um, he's filled in at right back um, when necessary and, and been pretty good there as well. And, you know, I think we've got five really, really good quality centre-backs there now. Um, I, I, I don't mind seeing any of them in the starting lineup. You know, any, any pairing of the five is is good for me, really. And um, and actually, I think it was quite a smart bit of business for us to make that centre-back signing, knowing the way that we play now with the with the fullbacks tucking in a little bit, that uh, we've got centre-backs who can kind of play that role as well. And maybe actually it did make a lot more sense for us to to sign another centre-back um, and sign a left-back in the end. So yeah, it's been a great signing and we didn't spend a lot of money on him as well. So all good. Yeah, absolute bargain. We've got centre-backs coming out of our ears uh, at the minute <laughs> and uh, they're all going to the World Cup. So it's like, it's, it'd be interesting to see what shape they're in when they all come back. Um, Switzerland probably don't really have a chance of winning the tournament, if we're honest. Uh, but they have been, I mean, they've been quietly impressive in major tournaments lately. I think of I, I think of the Euros and um, they were they were one of the teams where I thought, these are pretty decent to watch. 
Yeah, and the flag's a big plus, so yeah. <laughs> I had to get that in. Yeah, yeah. So I'll set them up, you knock them down. <laughs> yeah, they, they, well, they knocked France out of the Euros. I think every World Cup they've been to, they've got out of their group. So um, I would fancy them to probably get out of the group that they're in here with uh, with Brazil, Serbia and, and Cameroon. And then uh, they'll, they'll be a, a decent test for someone in the, in the knockout rounds. Yeah, well, uh, sticking with uh, Group G, it's back to South America now and uh, another one of the favourites for the World Cup. It's time to talk about Edison and Brazil. He's made a few big saves for City already this season and we know he's great with his feet. We've spoken to Brazilian football expert Tim Vickery, who's based in Rio de Janeiro, to find out what role the goalkeeper will be playing in Qatar. The coach says that he's got three goalkeepers exactly on the same level, um, which is Alisson, Weverton of Palmeiras and, uh, and Edison. Um, but we really, we know what the hierarchy is. Uh, Weverton is three, your man is two, and Alisson is number one. And we've seen that very clearly this year because Brazil have played 10 games this year. Uh, and uh, Edison has just played one of them. Uh, and that was a 4-0 win at home to Paraguay when he could have taken out a deck chair. So uh, he, he really hasn't had a lot to do with, with, with Brazil. Uh, and uh, I think it's very, very clear that Alisson will go into the World Cup as first choice. As Although, you know, the history of World Cups is is full of stories of uh, teams that started the World Cup not being teams that ended them. Um, there's always a chance of injuries and so on. But as it stands, it seems very, very clear that he's a number two. Yeah, and I guess there's, bar an injury, there's nothing that would have happened in, in the final few weeks of the first half of the of the season with uh, with Liverpool that would have changed that. No, not at all. Not at all. That's uh, uh, National team football is a process. You know, and Brazil, and one of the things they're really celebrating is the fact that this time around, the coach has had the entire four-year build-up to Qatar. He had less than two years in the build-up to, to Russia. Uh, and he's very, very happy to have had that process. And that, that is an absolute key word. So what, what happens at, at club level is, I don't think it's particularly important. It, it, it's what, what the players have been doing. Um, over this process of, of the Brazilian national team. Uh, and unless, unless Alisson were A, to pick up an injury, or B, to suffer a bizarre loss of form and confidence, uh, he will start for Brazil in the World Cup. Yeah, um, just in, I mean, in terms of their relationship between Alisson and, and, and Edison, do, do, you, do you think Edison's presence in the squad um, kind of pushes Alisson to, to perform? Yes, I mean, that's one of the great secrets of uh, of winning a world cup um the the reserves uh and the reserves keeping the first choice on their toes absolutely no doubt about it well allison is very very aware that if if he slips up he's got someone very very good um who can who can come in and and obviously there are aspects of uh, of edison's game that are that are better even than those of 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 allison so that that really does serve to to keep the number one on his toes yeah. Um, just uh, just finally then, Tim, what, uh, what are you expecting Brazil's uh, ambitions will be for this World Cup? Well, there's only one ambition that Brazil can ever have for a World Cup, and that's to win it. Everything else is a, is a disappointment. They're a better team than they were four years ago, and they weren't far off four years ago. I, I think that, that terrific quarterfinal against Belgium, I think they probably deserved the right to take that into, uh, in, into extra time when the momentum would, would clearly have been with them. And they're a better side this time. They're a more consolidated side this time. And they're a very attractive side. Um, they're, they're, there's huge unknowns about this World Cup. And uh, one of the big ones is the absence of national team football we've, that we've had since, the, since Russia um, between 
Europe and South America. And Brazil have played one game against European opposition, which was a visit to the Czech Republic three years ago. So, you know, all of Brazil's campaigns since they won the World Cup in 22 have ended when they've come up against the Western European side in the knockout stages. Uh, so that's where the bar is, and we don't know how they're going to deal with that bar, but we're going to have a lot of fun finding out. Yeah, just uh, just on a hunch, do you reckon uh, do you reckon they've got a good chance of, uh, of Edison bringing oh. home a, a medal? Oh, yes, no doubt about it. They are, they are in it to win it. Um, almost the, the, the problem they've got is things of, of the last 18 months, things have gone too well. They haven't been un- under pressure. Um, if, we, if, we, if we're going to talk about goalkeepers, they'd had, a, they'd had a pretty good run. They weren't that attractive to watch, but they, they, they'd had a, a pretty good run um, in the run-up to the World Cup in South Africa in 2010. Uh, and uh, they were playing the quarterfinal and they were, they were a goal up and they were uh, looking the more likely side to score against, against Holland. One blunder from the goalkeeper, from Julius Sousa, brought Holland back into the game and Holland won that game. Uh, so, you know, just the appliance of a little bit of pressure can change the scenario entirely. Uh, there are, I think that the position of playing in goal for Brazil in a World Cup is one of the most fascinating in sport. Because there's usually, there's not a lot to do. But at decisive moments, what you do has a profound effect uh, on the team and on a nation of some 215 million people. Um, so uh, what, what we're going to find out, because you don't win the World Cup winning the easy games, you win it in the difficult games. And we're going to find out how the team and how the keeper react to that kind of pressure. I guess in many ways, actually, then in, in that sense, Liverpool and, and City are probably the perfect teams for Alisson and Edison. Well, uh, Alisson's getting plenty of practice this year, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> which is a bit more practice than, than Edison is, which, is, which is, is, is keeping him sharp. Not good for Liverpool, but good for, good for giving Brazil's keeper a little bit of matchday experience. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. That was Tim Vickery talking to me about uh, Edison and Brazil. Um, Dan, I think we we already knew this from previous Brazil uh, um, international games, but Edison isn't uh, isn't likely to play too much. Um, have you got any complaints about that? Given that uh, like Edison and Allison has always been this this kind of little mini rivalry, and I look at, at kind of what City and what Liverpool do, and it just feels like Edison is. Maybe the perfect goalkeeper for City, but maybe not for many other teams. Yeah, I think overall you'd have to say that Alisson is a better goalkeeper than Edison in terms of what goalkeepers are expected to do, mainly saving shots. I think Alisson is a much better shot stopper and probably has a better command of his area. I do feel that people often conflate Alisson and Edison in terms of their ability with the ball at the feet and kind of assume that Alisson is is as good as Edison when he's he's definitely not. I think Alisson is actually quite cumbersome with the ball at his feet and has has made a few mistakes over the years, most notably against uh, City at Anfield a couple of years ago, whereas whereas Edison is basically one of the best passers in the Premier League, isn't he? And and there are a few few goalkeepers that that rival him. I don't think any goalkeeper is as good as him with, with the ball at his feet and that is exactly what City need him for, perhaps more so than we need a shot stopper. In an ideal world, he would be a better shot stopper and would would would, would make more saves. And, you know, he, he does make the odd good save here and there and, and comes to City's rescue and um, maintains a level of concentration throughout the game, which is quite impressive um, when he's not called into action so much. So I'm, I'm happy with Edison as City's goalkeeper. I think he, he does the job that we need him to do. Um, but I also understand why Alisson gets picked ahead of him for Brazil. 
Yeah, it's possibly one of those players as well where Guardiola will, uh, as he was talking about earlier on, about uh, it, it depends how much they play. Well, I mean, it, it's it's feasible that Edison goes to Qatar and, and doesn't play a minute, and then yeah. you know he's, he's he's back ready for for, for City's uh, restart. Yeah, I mean they're only goalkeepers, aren't they? They don't they don't do much anyway, as you, as you would know. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I I I've not uh, I I've not made this confession in public before uh, that often, but uh, I played outfield uh, a few months ago um, in one of our six aside games because one of the lads got injured and said I can't. We didn't have a sub, and he was like, I can't, uh, I, I can't, I can't run. I need to, I need to go in goal. I played outfield for ten minutes, and I I couldn't breathe, <laughs> couldn't breathe by the end of it. It's horrid, absolutely horrid. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Although right. I think Edison would probably quite like playing outfield, wouldn't he? Yeah, I mean, if, he, if given the opportunity, I mean, he, he tries every now and then, doesn't he? Yeah. So uh, yeah, he'd probably probably give it a good go. Um, well, let's keep the tenuous links going in order to make there seem like there was some sort of structure to this program. So sticking with the Portuguese-speaking nations, absolutely seamless. You'll love that. Um, <laughs> let's find out more about some of City's Portugueses. Three players are likely to be representing Portugal in Qatar in the shape of Bernardo Silva, João Cancelo, and Ruben Dias. I've been speaking to the Portuguese football expert Alex Gonçalves to find out how they'll be involved. We started by discussing Bernardo Silva's role. Well, Bernardo's the interesting one, really, because I think there's a lot of a lot of Portuguese football fans that would love to see him played through the middle, yeah, as, he, as he does so often for Manchester City. And to be fair, we have seen him there, you know, a, a couple of times for Portugal, but usually Fernando Santos chooses to uh, to employ him on the right wing, which, of course, is where he, he traditionally uh, used, used to play um, more often for, for both club and country. Uh, so he's he's the, the the bigger question mark. What's guaranteed is he will definitely be playing. I think we could say he's probably actually the star of the of the Portugal national team right now, um, ahead of you know Cristiano Ronaldo, of course, and 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 everybody else. Uh, Portugal have a lot of a lot of really good talent, but Bernardo Silva, what he can do, his vision, his incredible ability on the ball, just he's such a a, a perfect player, really, that he's guaranteed to play. But the big question, and it could really, it could really affect Portugal's chance of winning the tournament, is whether Santos chooses to play him through the middle or on the right wing. I would also like to see him play through the middle, but to be honest, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we see him if we see him line up uh, on the flank instead. Yeah, he's been he's been one of the players that uh, generally City have been quite comfortable moving around, and and he's performed really well whether he's played through the middle or, or on the flanks. Um, what what is it for Portugal? What uh, do, do they do they tend to build the team around these sorts of players? He's, he's one of the most creative players I've ever seen at City. Is it, I, I'm assuming it's the same for for the national side. Oh, completely. He's yeah, he's unbelievable, isn't he? I think he'd be he'd be probably the best player of almost any nation in the world. I mean, and, and pretty much any club as well. Um, yeah, Portugal have built uh, built their team around, of course, Cristiano Ronaldo for for a long time. Um, I guess that was because more so that Portugal's didn't weren't as blessed with the uh, with the stellar quality they have now. So I don't think there's really a need so much now to to build around one player. I think that's the the beauty of this Portugal team. There's like there's quality all across the pitch, and so building it around one player isn't necessarily uh, the right way to to approach it. I don't think anyway. But um, certainly, Bernardo Silva is going to feature heavily at this World Cup. I would be surprised if he didn't start every match, really, unless there's a, a dead rubber game at the end of the group stage, which would be wonderful, of course. But uh, I think otherwise, he's uh, he's a guaranteed starter. I think he's the first name on the team sheet. 
Yeah, um, let's move a little bit further back because uh, City have uh, two uh, quite key Portugal defenders as well in uh, Joao Cancelo and Ruben Dias. Um, if if Bernardo plays on the right flank, does he does he tend to link up with uh, with, with Cancelo? Because Cancelo's he's he's been playing better at left back for City this season. Is, is he likely to play left or right? Well, this is the interesting thing again, and. Um... Portugal are quite well stacked at, at right back. You know, of course, they would have Ricardo Pereira as well, but his injury problems have kind of stinted his uh, his development, stinted his chances of playing uh, for Portugal. You've got Nelson Semedo at, uh, at Wolverhampton Wanderers. And then, of course, you've got the breakthrough of Diogo Dalot, who's who's been really good for, for Man United this season as well. So it'll be interesting if actually we do see Cancel fill in at left back uh, more so now. Portugal, of course, do have Nuno Menge on 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 the left flank as well, um, so he's he's a very good player at PSG, and you've got Rafael Guerreiro as well. But both of them are you know susceptible to injury. So if if we do see one of them or two of, both of them get injured, it wouldn't shock me at all if we see João Cancelo play at left back for Portugal. Otherwise, I do th- I do think that we'll we'll see um, Cancelo mainly playing at, at right back because I think that Nuno Menge and João Cancelo. Those two as a as a kind of almost partnership on each side, that would be a, 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 an excellent thing to see Portugal going forward with those two players because they are both very attack minded, very good, um, you know, at, at taking players on. But yes, it'll be interesting to see if if we do see him play at left back because I mean, the, the thing with Cancelo is he could play pretty much anywhere, couldn't he? Yeah, I mean, he's, he could play. He's, he's a defender that uh, that you think of as more like a winger in many in many respects. Exactly. He's, he's very much more uh, on the front foot, isn't he? Um, yes. Diaz, I, I think I feel like Diaz is 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 the same in many ways in that he he's a very aggressive centre back. He likes to win the ball really really high up the pitch. Um, how how does he perform for Portugal? Uh, a really good performer, honestly, for Portugal. He's been he's been really good, very reliable. Um, the the interesting thing, I mean, he's again going to be guaranteed to be playing. But of course, his uh, his usual sentiment partnership, the veteran Pep, uh, thirty nine years of age now, is likely to miss the World Cup. And of course, it probably would have been his last. So, from a Portugal perspective, very disappointing to see him absent. I guess other nations perhaps not as upset about that. Um, but it'll be interesting to see who is his partner for, for the World Cup. It's most likely going to be Danilo Pereira, who is a central defensive midfielder by trade, but has been shifted to centre-back both for Portugal and for uh, his club as well. So I think we're going to see Ruben Dias uh, partnering Danilo Pereira at the heart of defence. They'll probably be the, the two regulars. And to be fair, they've played together a few times now and they've formed a, an excellent partnership. They've got a really good really good balance to them. Both very um, you know seem to have very good communication, very good partnership so I think Ruben Dias is guaranteed starter and, uh, and and I think you know if Portugal are going to have success again they've got to be good everywhere on the pitch and he's going to have to be a have to be a star as, as he so often is yeah I'm uh, just just looking at the group as well um, Portugal Ghana Uruguay South Korea um, what's what's the feeling like about about that group for Portugal well, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you've got you've got four different four teams, all from different continents. You know, it's um, it's it's very rare that you see uh, European teams play uh, nations from Africa, from from uh, Asia, from North or South America nowadays. Because you've got the Nations League, of course, so very few friendlies really occur between different continents. So it's it's a bit unpredictable in that sense. It would have been nice maybe to have another European team, even if they maybe would have been a better team than, than the ones Portugal got, purely because there's you, you know more what to expect. Um, 
the problem with the likes of South Korea, Ghana, Uruguay, we, we haven't seen Portugal play these types of teams unless it comes to, to major tournaments. And Portugal often do struggle against the likes of Uruguay from South America. And again, yeah, South Korea, very they work hard. It's a it's a very good team. Ghana did very well to get here. It's it's I don't know, it's a question mark really. And Portugal are expected to top the group. Of course they are. They're they're favourites for it. Certainly get top two. But there is that little bit of unpredictability and excitement because it's such um such a varied group in in that the, the whole world is almost uh, represented by. Yeah. What's uh, just finally, Alex? What's uh, what's the feeling for uh, Portugal at this tournament? How far do you think they can go? Well, I think my my expectation is Portugal at least make the quarterfinals. That would be a, a reasonably good achievement. Uh, of course, the, Portugal's World Cup record is really poor. It has to be said. You know, apart from two thousand and six, where they reached, uh, where they got fourth place, they haven't actually uh, got out, got past the round of sixteen since nineteen sixty six. That that one from two thousand and six is the only time since nineteen sixty six they've managed to get past the round of sixteen. Uh, you know, the last four tournaments have been. Uh, the last three, so I've been last 16, group stage last 16. So quarterfinals will be progress. But of course, the the overall aim, the overall objective is to win the tournament. And you have to say that Portugal do have a chance of doing that. You're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. Facebook.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. So that was Alex Gonsalves talking about the uh, Portuguese players that City are having at the tournament. Um, these three, when you like, it's really weird, Dan. That I, when I was putting this show together and, and thinking about how uh, involved each of the players were, these are these are three real key players for City during their during their times at, uh, at the club. Um, what what do you make of the seasons that they've had so far? Yeah, well, I mean, Bernardo Silva um, obviously was thrilled, like all City fans, that he that he stayed this summer and didn't leave for Barcelona because. That was something that I was really worried about, and uh, you know, I think he's such an important player for City. I think he's he's one of one of the best players we've ever had, basically, and um, and I love watching him play. And it's, it's really that- it, yeah, it's really nice to hear that he's Portugal's main man as well now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, and um, it's it's kind of a weird role that he plays for City. In that like when we signed him, we thought we were getting a bit of a sort of David Silva clone who would like play in that final third, you know, be acting as a playmaker, threading passes through, doing all that nice kind of dainty stuff. Whereas he, he does a lot of dirty work for City, Bernardo Silva. He drops deep, you know, sometimes he's picking the ball up in between the two centre-backs and, and doing a lot of kind of defensive work that a bit that goes goes unnoticed. And I, I do think that perhaps we're not getting the best out of him sometimes, but a little bit like Edison, really, in terms of what we need, the role that we need him for, he, he's performing that perfectly. So, yeah, long may it continue, and I hope I hope Bernardo stays forever. Um, Cancelo, you know, I'm a big fan of Cancelo. Um, I, I think he's a fantastic footballer. Not such a great defender, unfortunately, but... We've seen that recently, again, haven't we? That's not, yeah, that's not, that's not really the role that City need him for. We need him as more of a creative player, and, he, and, and that's he, he does that role superbly. You know, obviously, he made the mistake against Liverpool and, and gave the penalty away against Fulham, which was um, a bit disappointing, but... I think the um, overall the, the attacking contribution that he makes kind of outweighs any 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 sort of defensive frailty that, that he has. And, and Ruben Diaz, I mean, I'm a, again, I'm a huge fan of his, and I'm, I'm really um, I've been really impressed with him since we signed him. Um, and he had injury problems at the end of last season. Yeah, I was going to say a bit of a quiet season this this season. I wonder if how much the injury problems at the end of last season have, have kind of made it a slow start, though. Yeah, it's been a bit of a weird journey since he came to City because you know when when we signed him, I don't think a lot of fans were that happy with the signing. Um, it seemed like a bit of a sort of third choice option, you know, having having gone for other other players during that window. He came in, 
settled really, really quickly, had an amazing season, um, got the got the Player of the Year award, of course. And then it seemed like, wow, we've got our, our new Vincent Company now. He's going to be the mainstay in the defence. He's going to be the captain. Um, you know, he's going to he's that he's that leadership figure that we've we've been lacking since Company left. Having had that injury at the end of last season, I don't know whether it's a case of they're just being very, very careful with his recovery still and and don't want to put too much pressure on him. But he's almost getting rotated in and out of the team an awful lot. And you don't see a lot of rotation with centre-backs, generally speaking. So it's quite odd um, that he's he's kind of not playing that much. And, you know, you think of games like the Manchester derby, he didn't play at all in that. You think that was a, a game that was kind of tailor-made for someone like him, really. So I'd be interested to see whether this rotation policy um keeps going in, in the second half of the season after the World Cup with the centre-backs or whether someone, uh, two players kind of nail down those roles on a more permanent basis because, uh, yeah, I, th- I, st- I think Ruben Dias is just fantastic. Yeah, I think uh, my hunch is that it'll continue to rotate purely because of, uh, as we talked about already, uh, fitness after the World Cup and yeah. uh, and the fact that, like I said, they've, they've got five centre backs so and and no full backs, so they'll, uh, they'll they'll all keep kind of moving into different positions. I think, yeah, uh, right. Well, we're all hoping for no injuries from the World Cup, but City have a couple of injury doubts going into the tournament. You'll know by now whether a couple of England players have made it, but it's still a mystery to us. So let's talk through the situation with Kyle Walker and Calvin Phillips, plus the influence of. John Stones, Jack Grealish, and first, Phil Foden. We've been speaking to the Telegraph's Northern football correspondent, James Ducker. He's a really interesting one. I mean, you know, he's not just one of the most exciting talents to come through City's academy. I think he's one of the most exciting young talents in the world. He's a player sort of followed very closely from quite quite a young age, because obviously you start to gather the buzz around him and that, that, that this kid might be quite unique. And I think a lot of people feel there could be a sort of a, a top three top five world world sort of star there but it's not quite happened for with England yet unusually I, I don't think he's been in being bad for England at all if you look at his goal involvements he's played eight, 18 games for them and he's had eight goal involvements so to put that into some context Mason Mount has had eight goal involvements in 32 appearances so he's delivered on occasion but I don't think Gareth Southgate has really quite figured him out yet or found a position for him that that really uh, makes him tick, which is obviously what happens on a on a regular basis with City. And for me, he's the sort of player that you build a team around. And and I think if England are going to have success at the tournament, then he is a player who is going to need to star, and they're going to have to find a way of maximising um, his talents. And for various reasons, it, it, it's not quite happened yet. And I, and I just sort of hope he doesn't end up becoming over the next year or so one of the players that England has that's obviously very talented, but we don't quite seem to know what to do with. Yeah, it's uh, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because, uh, I mean, take him and uh, and Jack Grealish. So, I, I mean, you, you've seen this season with City how how Grealish and Foden have been linking up. And it, it again, it doesn't really seem to happen for England that often. And I'm, I'm wondering if it's, uh, you know, even something as simple as being at a major tournament might be the thing that, that, that clicks them together. I think the thing with Foden, I think, you know, he, he embraces the big stage, doesn't he? I mean, he's completely and utterly unfazed by it. And I think you want players like that in your team. And I think he will be very excited uh, about the prospect of this World Cup. It's hard to pinpoint reasons. I mean, I I understand to one extent why Southgate has played a back three, but I, I just am quite opposed to it for two reasons. One, I think we are clearly at our strongest at the front end of the pitch. And I think you've got to find a way to try and get another attacker 
on the pitch, who is very comfortable in possession, who wants the ball, and trust those players that that front six to keep the ball. And we've certainly got players now who are good enough to do that. And also, we are weakest at centre half. I don't quite buy the argument about well, you've got to compensate for for that by adding another player in that position. Well, it just means that you're adding another player on the pitch who is not as good as you have in in other departments. And I know you don't you don't win tour. You know, there's no tournaments handed out for flair and flamboyance and and everything else. And there are teams that have won it very pragmatically. And I understand the need for that. It's not just gung ho all the time. But I I just feel that we we might actually control more matches with a, with another attacker. And I, and I think someone like Foden would benefit from that. I can understand maybe why Grealish doesn't play. I think he yes he takes greater care of the ball now. I think he's having had a year under Pep. His overall game is sort of evolving. I don't think Southgate fully trusts him. I don't expect both Grealish and Foden to start. I think for Grealish to start, it means Raheem Sterling being dropped. Yeah. And Sterling fully justifies his place for England. He's He's got a very good record there. Southgate's a huge fan. He's he's very experienced. You know, he has delivered for his country. And I can understand that one. But I'm with you on Foden, David. I think... I think they have to get that right. And whether that means in playing sort of almost as a 10 and a sort of a 4-2-3-1 or, or whether he's on sort of the right of an attacking three, be interesting to see how he's utilised. But I, I'm not sure Southgate's totally figured that one out. Yeah, just on, on Grealish as well, quickly, it's 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 interesting how we've both we've both kind of alluded to the the, the way he's settled there into into Guardiola's system this season and and he's looking a lot more refreshed than uh, than he was last season. Will that go to help him or is 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 this tournament a little bit too soon for him in that in, in that regard, in that you know he's a player that is coming into form, but you know he's, he may be not be in the starting lineup for England. I think it's a little bit too soon, but uh, but I'll be honest. I think even if it, even if the tournament was next summer and he was coming off the back of a of an excellent season, I'm still far from convinced that Southgate would would drop Raheem Sterling to accommodate Jack Grealish. They are both obviously fighting for that sort of left wide, wide left berth, so it's it's one or the other. And clearly, obviously, that system, if it ends up being a three five two, it's sort of Sterling in behind Kane. But I do think he's a sort of player that could be very handy as an impact substitute. I think you might see the likes of Rashford and, and Grealish used in that capacity. Yeah. Um, and I think they could be quite effective. Just on uh, on the centre-backs as well, one of those uh, is John Stones. Um, he, I, I'm, I'm really happy for John Stones and the way he's turned his, his City career around. Um, what, what do you make of his, uh, of his prospects going forward for England? Uh, very good. It, for me, he's, he's far and away the most important centre-half. I think Southgate will have been absolutely petrified when he saw him go off injured a few weeks back. Obviously, he's back now. I've always been a big fan of him. I think what's happened with Stones is he's seen an awful lot in his career. You know, he's seen a lot of circumstances and situations on a pitch. And I think he's talked about this himself. And he just looks like a player now who he knows what's coming. He knows what what's expected. And I think... You know, he's always been very good on the ball. I think he's improved tremendously still on that. I think he's absolutely superb on the ball. But he's he's tougher and he's good in the air. He's, he's in, defending has improved no end. I mean, he's become a very, very solid defender. Um, he's not slow. 
he's comfortably England's best centre-half, I think. I mean, he's comfortably England's best centre-half and he's. I think he's going to be absolutely crucial. For me, he'd be one of the first names on the team sheet. Uh, and I think him being in form and fit for this tournament will abs- be absolutely crucial to, to England's uh, prospects. Yeah. Um, just looking at uh, a couple of other prospects for for the squad, as we talk, uh, we we have to record these interviews before uh, the squads have been announced. And uh, it's it, it's unsure yet whether Kyle Walker and Calvin Phillips will make it. So let's let's start with Kyle Walker. Um, if he's if he's not fit enough to go to the tournament, do England have a problem there? I think they do. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Walker and Stones personally. I think Kyle will be the first to tell you that there are more technically proficient players but he's had to take on an awful lot in his position playing in a Guardiola team and I think he's become a pretty savvy player who's capable of playing at right back and also capable of playing as a, a third centre half the pace is a huge huge asset he's experienced I think he's got 17 win caps now um, he's a winner uh, I think he's popular in the group he's absolutely intolerant of I was going to swear then, but he's intolerant <laughs> of it, of it, of excuses. Kyle Walker, um, I think he knows what it takes to win. He found himself a bit out of the England setup for a while, and that, um, and he maybe had a little bit of dip in his form. But he's really—I don't—I won't call it an Indian summer because he's a sort of player I could still see playing in the Premier League in his late thirties. But he's, you know, if he if he doesn't make it, um, I think it will be a loss. He's an interesting one, Walker. I think he. He could get back up to speed quite quickly. I'm not sure all players are like that, but I think he's he's got that in his and his locker. So I'm not a fan of a player. You know, he's he's not really fully fit. We'll take him to a tournament that has backfired spectacularly for England in the past. He is one that I might be willing to make an exception with, uh, unless it's clear that he's just patently patently unfit. But a real shame, I think, as well at his age. What is he? 32 now. Just. I know they're very well paid and the the fetid and the indulging and whatever else, but Carl Walker wants to play football. And I think the the idea that he might miss this tournament through injury at that age is pretty sad. Yeah. Um, and just on Calvin Phillips as well, he's he's had a really, really difficult start to his city career with injuries. Um do you see him being being able to to make it in time for the tournament? And if he's if he is able to, what do you think he offers England? I don't think he should go to the tournament, David. What is he played 14 minutes of football this season? And he's now obviously getting over, uh, recovering from a shoulder injury. I think the reality with him is, is even if he ends up being sort of fully fit and the, the shoulder's not debilitating, and I think anyone who's had a shoulder injury will tell you it does take some time to get some confidence back into your body with that one. He's just not played any football. So he, he's, he's just going to be completely non-match fit. He's just that rhythm that confidence that you get from playing every three days, he's just not going to have that. And I, I know he was a, played an, a, an important role with, with Declan Rice in the middle of the pass for England. But I, I just think it's, I just, I just don't see the logic in him going to the tournament. And I know that might sound blunt, but it just, it just doesn't add up. I mean, even if he ends up being fully fit, he's, he's, he's he could be completely off the pace. They're not blessed with loads of central midfielders, but um, it does look like it's going to be Declan Rice and Bellingham. And I think that's a better two in the sense that they need to be a bit more enterprising and, and creative midfield. I think probably complement each other in that regard, but still be able to do that defensive work, which is obviously one of uh, Calvin Phillips's assets. 
Yeah. And uh, just finally, James, um, with England going into this uh, this tournament off the back of making the Euros final, but then uh, a relegation in the Nations League, what do you think the hopes should be for, for England at this tournament? I think it's a really hard one to call. I don't feel like they're going into the tournament on an upward curve with real momentum, which, you know, I think you want. I think there's there's obviously question marks over the fitness of certain players. And, and I think there's obviously big questions over the fitness and, and form of, of players that Southgate has sort of depended on in the past, not, notably Harry Maguire. And I'm not so sure. I mean, I personally think the winner will come from one of Brazil or uh, Argentina. I think all of the, the sort of established elite in Europe, they've had, you know, problems in, in one form or another. So I don't think any of them are, go into it in sort of really rude health like Argentina and Brazil are. Uh, but I, I'd still sort of put the Portugal and the France and the Spain's prospects slightly uh, above England, perhaps. I could see them get to the quarterfinals. And then I think from there, I mean, it, the potential run to, to the final gets very tough from that point. And just be interesting to see how they manage it at the time. You know, they could have a great group stage and a great last 16 and they, and they gain that momentum at the tournament. And the one thing I would say is that in the likes of Kane, Foden, Saka, Rashford, Mount, Grealish, Bellingham, Rice, they do have talented midfielders, attacking midfielders and forwards. That There are goals in that team if they can find the right formula. They've certainly got enough in their arsenal to ask a lot of questions of opponents I just I just wonder about the whole structure of the team I think they there is a vulnerability at, at the back and that might cost them get a dollop of city nostalgia every Monday sign up at patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast that was James Ducker talking about the England squad um Dan, England have the the, the most uh, of the City players in the squad. Um, how do you think the English City players have done internationally recently? Because it, it feels very different to to what they achieve with England to how they how they play with City. Yeah, I mean, well, I'll, I'll start with Phil Foden because you know if you look at the um, look back to the Euros a couple of years ago, I think a lot was expected of, of Phil Foden. You know, there was all these Paul Gascoigne comparisons going around with before the tournament, uh, not helped by him dyeing his hair bleach blonde yeah. as well. <laughs> I, and I felt like he didn't really give the best of himself at that World Cup. I think I think it was a bit of a disappointment for Foden and obviously he got injured later in the tournament and, and couldn't play in the final, which was um, which was disappointing. So I'm hoping the World Cup will be when he sort of really announces himself on the, on the international stage. And uh, Grealish was almost... Uh, well, he wasn't playing for City at the, at the Euros, of course, but I remember there was a lot of clamour for Grealish to be playing, uh, in some cases ahead of Foden. And I remember people getting very excited when, when Grealish was coming off the bench, uh, waiting to see what he could do. You know, he was really kind of flavour of the month among the, the England fans at the time. And I feel like since he's come to City and and not done brilliantly well, um, a lot of people who who really rated him back then perhaps don't rate him so much now. So it would be good to see him having a world a good World Cup as well and kind of get himself back in the back in the public consciousness because uh, I think he needs that. Just on Grealish, um, I, I mean, what do you make of him at City as well? Because he's he is a hot topic with City fans. I mean, it's not been an overwhelming success, um, his his transfer to City so far. I don't think it's been a disaster either. I think he's had some good games. Obviously, his his contribution in terms of goals and assists hasn't been what we what we expected. And, and I think he has been as disappointed as anybody about that and really is... Uh, 
is keen to to correct that. And, you know, I think the fans really want to see some more of that from Grealish, but for the role that he does in the team, it's very good. You know, he, he helps maintain the tempo. He, he keeps keeps things ticking over, doesn't lose the ball very much and and has had some very good moments this season. You know, I'm thinking, thinking that the Manchester derby, he was really good in that game. I am really keen for him to start getting those goals and getting those assists because, you know, I, I really want this transfer to work out and I don't think it really matters what other people think about it. I think people are going to, you know, even if he won five Ballon d'Ors in a row, people would say we pay, we pay too much for him, but um, that's probably never going to go away. That that transfer fee is always going to be yeah. a bit of an albatross around his neck, but I, I think there's there's more to come from Grealish. I'm, I'm confident that he'll that he'll sort it out. And uh, and Walker, like he, um, you know, with Rhys James not being available for the World Cup, if, if Walker can, can get himself back fit, um, Southgate obviously doesn't doesn't fancy Trent Alexander Arnold either. So that right back spot is is Walker's to, to lose. Really, I would imagine Stones will be one of the main centre-backs as he usually is and uh, I think he he's made Harry Maguire look a lot better than he actually is um, in an England shirt in recent years as well so I think John Stones is a really important player for England and and Calvin Phillips you know we've seen almost nothing of him in a City shirt so far which has been disappointing due to injury and it, and we didn't see an awful lot of him for Leeds last season either it was actually his his performances for England at the Euros a couple of years ago um, that was maybe sort of convinced that he'd be a good signing for City. So yeah. if he can get himself fit for the World Cup again, like he, he could be a really key player for England and and hopefully that will um, lead to him uh, getting on track for City as well. Yeah, just a, a quick word on John Stones before we, we move on as well, because I, I can't say enough good things about John Stones just mm. because of his... I mean, you think back to that that behind-closed-doors pandemic season when he, he linked up with Ruben Diaz and, and basically saved his, his City career. Because uh, the, the the season before the the, the uh, twenty nineteen twenty season that that culminated in City going out to Leon uh, in the Champions League, Stones was he, he was so far behind Eric Garcia mm. in, in the in the pecking order, and you're like this guy's this guy's surely finished at City, and then you look yeah. where he is now. He's he's possibly the club's best defender. I think he is actually of the five centre backs that we've got. I would say he's he's the best one, um, and has, has done a, a decent job at right back when required this season as well. And yeah, you think back to the the um, the twenty twenty Carabao Cup final against Aston Villa when he made that mistake, and I remember thinking that's got to be it for John Stones. Now we can't yeah. tolerate this anymore. Really, it's not there's no there's kind of no coming back from this. And then you know the following season, I don't think he played properly until about November time or something. And then once he got in the team, there was no getting him out of it really he, he formed a great understanding with Diaz and has been has been pretty much superb ever since and he had a, he had some injury problems a couple of years ago which seems to have cleared up a lot now and uh yeah you just I think he's a wonderful player and I think he's very underrated John Stones I think a lot of non-City fans still don't rate him and he's he's a big fan favorite with City fans for a reason because he's superb yeah um, well, let's turn our attention back to the continent now and go to uh, another fan favourite for obvious reasons. Uh, we've got four European teams left to cover and we're starting with Belgium and Kevin De Bruyne. He's such a key player for City, arguably only one of a couple of players at the club who's in the if he's fit, he plays category. And he's also key for his country too. I've been speaking to Belgian football expert Christophe Terreur about what De Bruyne could achieve in Qatar. He gave an interview, I think it was last week, where... Yeah, he, he he will bring his kids and the, his wife over to Qatar because he feels that it's the last time he can play a good World Cup in front of his kids that they can live the the, the big moment of yeah Kevin De Bruyne having one of his 
best years, I think, uh, ever. I think it's 2021 is his best year ever. And he wants to share that with the, with, with, with the ones he loved. So he will bring his kids over. And that says a lot about what the World Cup means for him, I think. Uh, uh, he, he will want to prove himself uh, to himself. He wants to prove himself to the world, but he wants to show his best to his kids to live this experience or to, to share this experience. And uh, yeah, I think, yeah, for Kevin, also for Belgium, it would be very important. That's basically it. Uh, definitely with the injuries we have uh, in the team, with uh, players that have, uh, have retired, all our hope is basically on Kevin if we want to get something out of, of the World Cup. Yeah, I was I was going to say obviously City when he's one of those players when he's fit he's is uh, is in the team sheet for for every every crucial game. Um how important is he to Belgium? Well, he's because uh, yeah, Eden Hazard hasn't been performing uh, anymore since 2019. Kevin has become yeah, our yeah, our most creative force. He was already a creative force, but it's now the man we rely on. Uh, um, Martinez has switched his role a bit, like uh, before he used to play as an as a more as an eight. Uh, the running midfielder, I think, is still his best role. The the way he plays at City, to where he can run, where he can move a lot. But for Belgium, in the last few years, he's been playing again as a as a as a number ten, basically close uh, close to the striker, a roaming number ten basically. And yeah, we rely on his goals and his assists uh, as yeah, Romelu Lukaku is not sure will be there in the in the first few games for, for, for Belgium because uh, of a hamstring injury. Yeah. Lukaku also relies on the service of, of, of Kevin De Bruyne, basically. So we need his creativity and that one uh, one uh, touch of genius, uh, what you saw also uh, at the Euros. Uh, is it already two years ago? Uh, yeah, almost two years ago, when Kevin has uh, had broken his nose and his eyes socket in the in the during the Champions League final. Not a good memory for for you City yeah. fans, I guess. But he 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 didn't play the first game uh, at the Euros, and then he suddenly came in in the second half against Denmark. And there you saw the the effect of Kevin De Bruyne with a few touches of brilliance. The, he changed the game completely and he wasn't at his best form yet. So we rely on those little moments from, from Kevin. And definitely he's one of the of the few Belgian internationals who's been performing on a consistent level in 2022, apart from Thibaut Courtois, the other superstar we'll, we'll rely on. And maybe Leandro Trossard, who's been doing very well at, at Brighton, but it's not, uh, it's not a guaranteed start. Yeah, we'll need Kevin and there will be a lot of pressure on his shoulders, I think, from from Belgian side. But he will cope with it because, yeah, he won't care what, what people are saying. Yeah, it's it's one of those things as well. He, he does tend to thrive under that pressure, and you, you see it from Guardiola. I mean, do you see that from Martinez as well? He can count on him in those big moments. Uh well, yeah, we, yeah, if we go back to the last World Cup, uh, yeah, five years ago, or yeah, four years ago, uh, when. Uh, the game against Brazil, that was Kevin brilliant. In the game against Brazil, he was brilliant. In the semi-finals against France, he wasn't. Ever. But people are still waiting, I think, for Kevin to be fully, fully, fully accepted as uh, the best midfielder in the world. Is that one 
deciding moment in a final, I think, or close to a trophy. That's the thing we're still waiting for, I think. Uh, like, uh, you, we saw what happened uh, in semi-finals uh, against Real Madrid last season for City, when he was running the show in the in the home game, but wasn't running the show in the away game. So that still leaves a little mark on Kevin's brilliance, like bring City to a final and make them make them win something. But he can that can change if he brings Belgium far in, in the World Cup too. It's just people are just waiting for that one defining moment and still World Cup and Champions League are in eyes of continental viewers. I don't know if it's the same in England where Premier League is also important. But that's that one moment, those two moments in the world where you can where you become world world class. Suddenly Kevin is world class, but he has to make that step to world world class by one defining moment. I don't think it will come with Belgium at a World Cup because there are far better teams than us at the moment. But still he can remember us maybe of of, of his brilliance. Yeah, I was going to ask about um, kind of Belgium's hopes for the tournaments in a group with uh, Canada, Morocco and uh, Croatia. Um, what, what what do you think Belgium can achieve at this tournament? Well, I think if we reach quarterfinals, we could be happy. I think we should survive uh, the group stages. Uh, I'm not going to say easily because those are quite equal opponents in level. It's It, it will be all close games, but if you look at Yet the draw is always important. If we are group winners, I think uh, we get Germany and Spain in the rounds after. And <laughs> two pretty tough uh, opponents, to be fair. We are the wrong side of the draw, basically. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. But I think because, yeah, I think for Belgium, we missed our chance at World Cup 2018. That was our moment with a defence at that moment only being around the 30 years, the defenders at that peak, the Brian and Hazard, not yet at that peak, but close to, to their best form. And yeah, now we have, uh, yeah, we've lost Vincent Company, an influential uh, figure is now uh, manager. Thomas Vermaal has retired too. Marwan Fellaini is not playing for the national team anymore. We saw them barely now. So we lost a lot of quality. We have a lot of oldies at, at, at the back. And um, that means we will have to change the way we play. I think that's probably also the reason why Kevin is now playing as a number 10 to have a little bit more balance in the team and to, uh, to uh, yeah, Kevin likes to take some risks to have a little bit more balance in midfield, a bit more defend, more cautious players than uh, than Kevin in midfield, so in, the, in the central controlling midfield. So I think that's uh, why Martinez has put him... Uh, a little higher, but yeah, we we are not the team that uh, that that was close to glory like in in, in two thousand eighteen, and nobody in Belgium expects us to be uh, world champion again. Everybody agrees that yeah, we've missed our chance, and we will have to wait a few more years to have a generation like this again, where you have a world class goalkeeper like Courtois, where you have a world class midfielder like the Bruyne, where you have, yeah, in the meantime, already not world-class anymore, winger like Eden Hazard, where you have a top striker like uh, like Romelu Lukaku, where you had like top-class defenders like Kompany and Vertonghen and all the way out in that 
at, at, and maybe even for Marlon at that peak, that's something we've lost now. So, uh, yeah, expectations aren't that high. Everything after quarterfinals is basically a bonus for us. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. But don't worry, it'll be over soon. So Dan, hearing Christoph say that the mood is that Belgium have missed their big chance and, and kind of missed their chances to, to to really achieve something at a major tournament, um, it just makes me feel really sad for De Bruyne, you know. Yeah, me too. Me too. I mean, he's been a he's been a fantastic player. You know, one of the best players in the world, and often players aren't rewarded at international level for that, unfortunately. And, and Belgium have had this this golden generation that seems to have kind of come and gone now. I feel like they're their peak was probably Euro 2016 when they they ended up losing to Wales and uh, it, you know that was probably it for them really and I, I can't see them winning the World Cup this year I, I think they'll probably get out of their group um, but that's probably about as much as I, I would really expect from them maybe a quarter final or, or semi final berth isn't beyond them um, I don't know if if Lukaku is going to be fit which is going to be a big problem for them as well and uh, yeah I just hope that um, De Bruyne finishes his career with uh, if not some international recognition then uh, then at least the Champions League because. He's, he's won the Premier League. He's won lots of individual awards, but that's a trophy that a player like him deserves to, you know, a level of trophy that a player like him deserves to have, have finished their, their career having won. And, you know, I think he's still in incredible player in incredible form. I wondered at the start of last season when he made a, a very slow start, whether maybe we'd seen the best of De Bruyne, whether he was past his peak. And uh, I don't even think he's reached his peak yet, actually. So that's great for City. And uh, let's hope uh, he, can, uh, he can do well for Belgium at the World Cup and come back feeling fit and uh, ready for the second half of the season because we need him. Yeah, it uh, it also made me feel bad for him the way he spoke about Belgium uh, needing to to change the system in order to protect the defense because that that basically takes away from what what De Bruyne can do and like it just it, I I just I just feel like it must be awful being like being such a talented player but having to play so restricted in a system. Yeah, it must be. Um, but I feel like De Bruyne will find a way. I think you could play De Bruyne at centre back and he would have a good game. You know, I think. Um, he's that kind of player. He's just the, the sort of complete footballer, isn't he? He can do anything. And I, I would imagine that he will he will absolutely shine in Qatar as he always does. Yeah. Does he does he need um kind of something to tip him over into that that kind of elite, elite level footballer? I mean, Christoph was talking about uh, international honours. Um, but I, I'm wondering if if you know if he comes away with a Champions League medal, whether, you know, I mean it you'd, you'd expect it to be at City now rather than anywhere else. Mm. Uh, but if he comes away with a Champions League medal, does that tip him into the category of, you know, like Lionel Messi of that that sort of level of player? Or is he there already? He's probably just below that level, I would say, um, only slightly though. And you know, I think if he were to win the Champions League with City, it tends to go hand in hand with the Ballon d'Or these days, as we saw with with Benzema winning it, winning it this year. So I think you know, if De Bruyne is going to win that accolade, which is kind of the ultimate accolade for a footballer, you know, I'm not a big fan of individual awards personally, but I can see why footballers like them. I think he probably needs to win the Champions League to get his hands on that and really cement his legacy. But you know, he's probably one of those players as well that people will truly appreciate when he's when he's retired and uh, we look back on his career and think, wow, what a fantastic player he was and, and how lucky we were to have watched him. But yeah, personally, I you know I really hope that he uh, he does get that that recognition before he before he finishes his career. 
Yeah, you often don't know what you've got till it's gone, and uh, yep. that could be uh, could be a real case of that here. Um, so the tenuous links keep on coming as well. Uh, one of the languages spoken in Belgium is Dutch, and wait for this one, uh, it's the Netherlands where we're heading to <laughs> next. Uh, City have one representative in the Dutch squad, and it's perhaps underrated defender Nathan Ake. I've been speaking to City fan and journalist Falco Kramers to find out how important Ake is to the Netherlands. Well, I would say... Actually, very uh, silently, uh, he played himself in the, in the starting eleven of the Dutch national team uh, the last few months. Um, he played in the two last uh, Nations League meetings, um, and uh, yeah, um, I would say that only three or four players are very safe of their starting eleven uh, for the World Cup right now uh, for the Dutch team. But um, Nathan Ake is, is very close to that, and. Uh, well, I would say that that's it's a great achievement for him personally, and he's done he's done very well over the last few months in the Dutch team. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it, it's I'd say the same about his, his City career as well. You know, he's uh, as he's as he's come into the team, he's uh, he's always performed when 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 City have needed him to. Um, how was how was the view? How was the move viewed um, in in the Netherlands about his uh, about his move from Bournemouth to City? Um, well, first of all, there were many question marks in the Netherlands when he left for England as a 16-year-old talent without any experience in, well, in the Eredivisie or on the second division. Um, but he, he made his way through, and uh, yeah, well, when he got to City, um, well, people uh, started to look up to look up at him. And uh, yeah, last month, um, a major Dutch football magazine featured an interview with uh, Piet Kramers. Uh, City's former head of analysis, and he knows him very much. And um, what they were saying, and also in the Netherlands, is is the, is the picture now is is that he wants to continuously invest in himself to become a better player. So uh, in the weight room, uh, looking back at match images, um, analyzing opponents beforehand, um, asking questions to trainers and specialists, and uh, well, he's very professional, and that's part of his character. Uh, I would say he, he himself deserves all the credit for his career. And uh, yeah, he's, he's made big steps and uh, uh, I think the, the big matches he played for City against uh, Liverpool and uh, Manchester United uh, this season, well, uh, showed that he is, he's right up there and uh, he's, he's ready to take, uh, to take on the starting eleven. I would say. Yeah, the um, the situation at City is a bit of a strange one with uh, with there being five centre backs, and and I think I, I think maybe City fans and people outside the club as well view Ake as as kind of very much towards the back of the of the queue when it comes to the centre backs. Um, but he's he he plays his way into the team quite regularly, and he, and he very rarely puts a foot wrong. Um, is that how how is he kind of ranked in in the Netherlands for for centre backs? Will he be will he be one of the starting players for Netherlands at the World Cup? I do think so. I do think so. Um, Ake's chances have also turned since Rui van Gaal uh, switched to a style of play uh, with a block of, of three central defenders. And at the first international match in that system, it was against Denmark uh, six or seven months ago, uh, Ake was in the starting uh, lineup. And what van Gaal wants is uh, to have a left leg uh, in the center on, on, the, on the left defense. And uh, well, he's going to start with three central defenders. Uh, that's that's of course uh, what he wants. And uh, okay, um, I think so. He will be one of them uh, alongside Virgil van Dijk, of course, um, and uh, Jurien Timber now uh, who plays for Ajax. So I think he's he's got a, a real good chance of of being in the starting eleven uh, when when they start the World Cup. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Ake himself is uh, is someone who's not uh, not a stranger to bringing the ball out and, and playing it a little bit. Uh, it, will that will that do him doing well with the Netherlands? Because I mean, there's there's always the tradition. You think of uh, you think of the Dutch national team, and you think of uh, you do think of progressive football. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Um, Vergaal likes to think from uh, ball possession, 
and uh, with his left foot, uh, like Nathan Ake has, um, that position can be filled in, in a natural way. And um, yeah, he has a great feeling for the ball and, and positional insight. Um, I think that those points he, he learned, especially uh, during his time uh, over the years at, at, at City. And uh, yeah, those qualities are important when you want to cover and, and have football from the back in your team. And uh, yeah, you can also really rely on Nathan defensively. So he has he is typical qualities. Um, which uh, which fit into into the Dutch team, yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, just looking at uh, at the group, it's Qatar, Ecuador, and uh, Senegal for the Netherlands. Um, how 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 are you how are you guys feeling about that group? Well, um, yeah, <laughs> a bit confident. Yeah, uh, Qatar, we have to win, of course. Uh, other two uh, countries will will be a little bit difficult, but okay. Uh, Senegal are the champions of Africa. They won the African Cup uh, last year, so I, I, the the opinion is that that they will be the hardest one to take. Um, Ecuador is a bit of yeah, a known team, I would say, but yeah, we, we're confident that we may get through the group phase and then, yeah, uh, who, who knows? Uh, it's a team uh, that can play various style and uh, Van Gaal has, has, has made a, a good team of it um, with some, some specific qualities. Um, uh, I would say the uh, the defense line is, is the most uh, strong part we've got with, with Van Dijk and Ake. And, and also Matthijs de Ligt from Bayern, Stefan de Vrij from Inter. So, um, uh, yeah, we'll see. But, but they're real confident that, that they, of course, come to the group stage and uh, make it to the last eight or maybe the last four. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. There's uh, there's a couple of players that uh, that City have that uh, have a have a decent chance of uh, of bringing home a medal from the uh, from the tournament. Do you think Ake is one of them? Do you think the Netherlands have got a real chance this time? Um, yeah, it, uh, well, it, it depends a little bit on the draw for the second round, but if, if they don't get England, um, uh, I, I think they, they really can, can steam up through the tournament. Yeah, I, I really do. And um, um, they, 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 um, they, they have a, a lot of, uh, I would say, weapons uh, other countries don't have. Um, um, Frankly, Young, who can play uh, in attack, but also very strong defensively. Um, at the, um, we have got Memphis Depay, who's, who's, who's scoring uh, almost two goals each match. So, so uh, yeah, there's some, some strong points in the team. But, but the most uh, important is that Van Gaal um, has had made a team of it. And, and uh, they're real co- close friends uh, when they're watching them, uh, while watching them. So, um, yeah, I, I would think that they can, can go to the semi-finals or maybe the final. I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if that happens. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Listen to it. Drink it in. So, Dan, uh, we're, we're flying through the centre-halves here. Um, do you find yourself cons- constantly surprised by the level that Ake keeps reaching at City? Yeah, I do, actually. Um, because, I mean, I was I remember when we signed him out, I was kind of a fan of the signing, but he uh, came from Bournemouth. And you do wonder whether a player is going to be capable of making that step up. You know, we've 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 made signings in the past from that level of club that haven't been able to kind of replicate that form at the level that City need them to be at. Um, so I wonder if that was the case with Ake. And uh, I don't know if he made a sort of brilliant start to his City career. Really, I think it was a it took him a little while to, to settle. And obviously, he's had injury problems over the time. And there's been times when you almost forgot that he played for us. And and now he seems to have kind of not nailed down a place because no one kind of has nailed down a place in that defence, but 
He's a bit more of a go-to guy. And I think it was a big show of confidence in him in the summer that City refused to sell him to Chelsea when the, the opportunity was there to make a big profit on him, actually. You know, we could have we could have really really made some money on him. And, and Guardiola said, no, I want to keep this player because I really rate him. Um, and, you know, like we said with Akanji before, you, you can put him at centre-back and I'd be, I'd be very comfortable with him playing there. Um, I'm really impressed by his sort of positional awareness sometimes. He's, he's always there to win the headers. You know, he's not the tallest player, but he's always... Winning those headers, he never loses passes. a header, does he? That's that's the. He's weird always thing. there, yeah. He's always there, and it's that's that's a very underrated skill for for a defender to have, I think. And uh, he can do a job at left back as well. You know, you wouldn't want to see him there a lot of the time. Uh, he doesn't offer offer an awful lot going forward, but as a defender, he's a he's a pure defender, really. And um, yeah, I think he's a really really useful member of City squad. Yeah. Right, well, uh, we'll stick with the defenders as well because uh, two countries to go. The next one is Spain. Uh, City have two players heading to Qatar representing the Spanish national team. In midfield at Rodri and defender Aymeric Laporte. I've been speaking to the Athletics' Paul Bias to find out more about what roles they'll play at the World Cup. We started by discussing Rodri's position in the team. So I'm sorry to say that for all the Man City fans, but I think that he won't be on the team sheet and in the starting lineups for the first game of Spain in the World Cup. Basically, his role um, in the squad is to be like the hair or the hire of, of of Sergio Busquets. Busquets is a, a pivotal player for Luis Enrique, for the Spanish national uh, manager. Um, and Rodri feels like, like the right guy just to take the reins when he leaves. But right now, it looks like Luis Enrique just uh, trust Sergio Busquets um, with with everything he has basically, and it looks like he's going to be the starter on the World Cup. Actually, I would be like very very surprised if if Rodri is a starting, despite the fact that he played really well on the last um, Nations League game against Portugal, uh, playing as a holding as a holding midfielder first and as a centre back later. Yeah, does is there any is there any chance we'll see much of him at the World Cup? Do you think, or is it very much a case of a few minutes here and there? Yeah, I, I, I think that he can be more of a player coming off the bench uh, at some point. Uh, Spain, I think it's a team that don't have like the offensive power of other national teams. So Luis Enrique basically relies on having the control of games, having the possession, having like good passers in the team. And I think that Rodri can play a role in that. But if you ask me just to draw uh, uh, like a predicted lineup, I think that Rodri is not going to be there. Yeah, um, it's, uh, it's interesting because of, of kind of what you say about control of games speaks perfectly to City fans because that's exactly what, what Guardiola does and, and Rodri's key to that. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that develops uh, over, the, over the course of the World Cup. Um, the other player that uh, that might feature, uh, I mean, the last time we did one of these shows, uh, Emmerich Laporte was French uh, and now he's Spanish. Yeah. So, uh, how, I mean, first off, how's that gone down? Well, how's, he been, uh, how's he been accepted into the Spain uh, setup? Uh, yeah, well, in the dressing room, he's been like perfectly accepted in there. Uh, the impact that he's had is like huge. Uh, firstly, because Spain had a problem in the in the center of the defense, uh, they needed like a strong voice in there, a, a, a player that Luis Enrique could rely on. And since he made his debut with the national team, I think that he's been like probably the best center back that that Luis Enrique has had in the team. Um, I don't have many doubts that he's going to be a starter. Um, some of the media at the start, maybe of his days um, in the Spanish national teams, maybe wondered. I can remember like one question to him in a in a press conference, asking him if if he were, if he was feeling like a Spanish himself. Some 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 stuff like that, just 
because he wanted to play for France, like um, in previous years. Um, and Laporte completely dismissed this question and said that, of course, he felt part of the Spanish national team. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think that he's pretty much loved or very loved for, for Luis Enrique and for the whole dressing room, and he's going to be a key part of, of this team on the World Cup. Yeah, I, w- I mean, I was going to ask about that because I think he'd, he'd previously said that uh, he wouldn't play for Spain and that it was it, it was not something that he'd be applying for. And then when the door was was quite obviously shut in the, on the French national team, uh, it's, it's something he considered. Um, yeah. But I mean, it, it kind of works both ways, doesn't it? If, it? if it helps Spain be successful and he gets international football, it's it's win-win. Yeah, and, and, and I think, well, I think I know that it played a huge role on Laporte's revival, if we want to call it that way. But after like... A, Tough season for him with um, Ruben Diaz and, and the Stones being the uh, main partnership. I think it was two years ago. Um, he he came back to the team last season and he 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 felt again with the confidence to fight for a spot in the starting lineup. And it was partly because of the confidence he got at the Euros. He felt important again in a team in the squad. He had the trust of Luis Enrique. He loves Luis Enrique. I mean, um, he's like really thankful to to the confidence that he's put in him. Um, so I think that, yeah, um, he, he, it's kind of a release for him just to go with Spain. He, he feels that um, he's enjoying a thing that he missed for a long time, uh, which is international football. Uh, Laporte felt that he deserved a call-up in the France national team way earlier than he did. And just when he did, when he get the call, when he got the call from Didier Deschamps, it was just in the moment that he got injured. Um, he got the ACL injury, so he could not make like his official debut. Um, and yeah, just France never called him back again and Spain came out of the blue. Um, he was more than happy to listen to them and now he's more than happy to to play on the Spanish shirt. Yeah. Um, just finally then, Paul, what uh, what do you rate as uh, their chances of bringing home a medal from uh, from this World Cup? How, how is Spain going into this one? I think it's going to be tough. I think that Spain is not uh, among the top five national teams in the in the world. But I think that, that at the same time, they are a team that have a really good manager and a, and a manager that actually takes the, the decisions in tactical terms, which is not very common in international football, um, and a group of players that really follow him. Um, that's a really strong value in short competitions such as World Cups uh, and, 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 and Euros. But if you ask me, I'd say that they, they will make it up until quarterfinals. I think for the squad they have, and of course it's going to depend on the, on the knockout stages, which kind of team they are going to face. But yeah, I think that that could be a realistic uh, target for them. We support the show by becoming a backer. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. That was Paul Bios talking to me about uh, Laporte and Rodri. Um, Dan, a little bit strange to hear how Rodri, uh, you know, an absolute key man that makes City tick, and the sort of the, the sort of name that when he's not on the team sheet, City Twitter has an absolute <laughs> meltdown. Um, but it, it's just weird to hear that, um, you know, he's just likely not going to be a starter for Spain. But it, it kind of makes sense with the with the strength that they've got in that position. But it's still, it like there is a there is a disconnect between what I see every week and, and <laughs> like what should be. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I was really surprised by that actually because I assumed that um, that Sergio Busquets was kind of being phased out uh, by Spain in the in the way that Barcelona were kind of phasing him out. You know, he's uh, he's probably going to be leaving Barcelona at the end of the season and going off to MLS or someone like that. So 
I I thought Rodri would be a would be a starter for Spain, so I was I was surprised to hear Paul say that. But you know, I'm I might be Rodri's biggest fan. <laughs> Actually, I think I'm, I really love the guy. Claim. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll fight anyone who, who uh, disagrees with that. So yeah, I, 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 I really really like him. You know, and I think it's been a big turnaround from him from when he signed his first season wasn't great at all. You know, he, he took him a long time to adapt to the pace of the Premier League. Um, you know, it might even have taken him two seasons, really. I, I think we, we we truly started to see the best of Rodri last season, um, I would say. Uh, obviously, he, he didn't play in the Champions League final. I think that uh, that kind of showed his, his kind of status in the squad at, at the time. Um, but he's he's now one of the first names on the team sheet. Um, I would like to think that he will he'll get a bit of rest at some point when, when Phillips finally recovers from his injury. But, you know, I'm always happy to see Rodri there and, uh, he's just a dominant player, an absolute monster in the middle of the park. I, I don't think there's a better defensive midfielder in the world, personally. I know I know we're a bit biased when we when we look at these players, but I can't think of anyone who's better than Rodri. Um, you know, and he chips in with the odd goal as well. He's he's just a fantastic player, I think, and, and he's been a great signing for us. I remember when we signed him thinking that, you know, Guardiola had got his new Busquets, having brought Busquets through at Barcelona all those years ago, you know, for a for 18 months or so, it didn't look like it was going to work out with Rodri necessarily, but now it certainly looks like uh, Guardiola has got, got his Busquets. Yeah. Um, and uh, like, like you said, there's there's nobody I can think of in world football I would rather have, uh, which mm. is obviously a, a, a huge sign of, uh, of what, he, what he brings to City. Um, just finally as well, Laporte, uh, a, a big story in all of this because he wouldn't be going to the World Cup if he, uh, if he didn't switch nationalities because he just, for whatever reason, was never involved in the, in the French setup. Yeah, I still find that absolutely bizarre because I think he's a he's a quality player and I think he's he's really done well for Spain since he came in uh, there. I think he he was really good at the Euros from them. Has been a been a bit of a mainstay in the defence when when fit and available since then, and, and will be one of the starters at the at the World Cup, I would imagine. Um, you know, he's had some. I, th- I think Laporte was a bit of a, an unsung hero of City last season. You know that. The fact that he played through a pretty nasty injury at the end of the season because we were we were down to the bare bones in terms of centre backs. You know, he got that that knee injury that's taken him a while to get up to speed again this season. Um but yeah, he's just he's just great on the ball. He's he's a good defender. You know, you don't see too many mistakes for him. He he chips in with the odd goal as well. Uh yeah, he's a player that I've been a fan of since he he walked through the door at City really. And uh I'm uh, I'm really hoping that he can have a good second half of the season too. Yeah, it was it was interesting to hear Paul talk about how switching nationalities as well and 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 kind of pledging his allegiance to the Spanish side was was one of the factors in in kind of rejuvenating his city career. I'd never thought of it like that, but it did coincide with, you know, as soon as he felt important again in the dressing room, his form picked up and he got back in the team. Yeah, it must have been a weird time for him um that because you know he he, he made that mistake uh, in the defeat at Spurs in the, in the lockdown season and lost his place to to John Stones and then didn't get back in the team for ages, you know, and and it, and I remember going into that season thinking he was probably our best centre-back um, and it, it kind of unravelled really quickly and, you know, perhaps a bit unfairly, really. I think it was only kind of one one error and he, he got punished for it. And then at the same time, he's thinking, I can't get a game for my club. I can't get a game for my country. You know, he's one of the best centre-backs in the world. Uh, it must have been really, really weird for him. So for him to then come back and, and win back his place at City and, you know, be, be recognised on the international stage as well. I think is is really great for him, and uh, it's great for City as well that he that he feels loved again. 
Yeah, and he's uh, he's playing a key role in uh, this World Cup in another way as well, because you might remember when the draw was made, uh, he and Ilkay Gundogan had a bet. Uh, with Spain and Germany paired together in Group E, the two City players decided that whoever finishes lower in the table will make a big donation to the Trussell Trust via the Man City Fans Food Bank Support Group. We finished today's show with a look at Gundogan's chances of winning that bet as we speak to German football experts Archie Reinsort. In Hansi Flick's system... His most likely position is to be one of those two holding midfield or sixer positions, as they call it. That's the number six, such as the way they do uh, shirt numbering in in Germany. So who who starts there? Uh, The question is, is it going to be Joshua Kimmich? Yes. Plus Goretzka or Leon Goretzka of Bayern Munich or Ilkay Gundogan. He does have the ability to play as a number 10. As I think you've seen at Manchester City as well. But it's most likely that he'll be battling out with Leon Goretzka for a starting spot. And that is interesting because at the 2020, slash quietly 2021 Euros, <laughs> he he started off as first choice uh, in, in central midfield, but then uh, lost his place to Leon Goretzka through, uh, through through the course of of the group stage, uh, he did have an injury going into the the final group stage game against Hungary, but was really poor. I think those those two things might go along with each other as well. But Goretzka was also the guy who ended up saving Germany from embarrassment against Hungary and taking them through to that game against England, where Ilkay Gundogan was on the bench, and that yeah. is something of the story of Ilkay Gundogan in the national team setup, which is it's never really quite worked out for him, despite the fact that he is and would be a, a starter for pretty much any country in the world. It's just that before him, uh, he had Bastian Schweinsteiger, who was pretty good. Uh, Tony Kroos, also quite good. Uh, and Sammy Kadira. And like if you could have asked for players that you would not want ahead of you in terms of your generation or in your position, I we're talking about one in generation talent. And whilst you probably put Ilkay Gundogan into that category as well, I think it's why after Tony Cross retired um, from the national team after Euro 2020, I think it's understandable that Gundogan was like, oh no no, I am very much sticking about here. Yeah, um, it's it's interesting that um, that that's kind of been the way as well because the one thing that that Guardiola always says about Gundogan from from a City point of view is he's one of the players who knows who knows when to play and he knows when to arrive, um, mm. and it's the sort of thing that that you always see from Germany as well. Germany seem to have that exact uh, that. that Kind of exact feeling and a knowledge of knowing when to get into the when to get into the box, when to get to the edge of the box. It would seem like Gundogan is almost perfect for. Them. Yes, uh, his his issue is that there is Leon Goretzka who is who is good at that as well for for Bayern Munich and has those qualities. I think that Gundogan has better qualities in terms of finding that eye of the needle pass forward. Uh, you see that on a regular basis for Manchester City as as well, and I think that in in games uh, in in the most recent batch of, of of internationals, I remember watching Germany away at England, and and I thought Gundogan was one of the players with the the best abilities to play it vertically. Uh, in in terms of the arguments for Leon Goretzka, 
his his physical prowess is, is something that he has, but I, I don't think that Ilkay Gundogan is bad at winning the ball back, uh, which is ultimately what what this is about. Um, sure, I think Goretzka is more of a threat from a from a set piece, but I, I don't think that that should necessarily count too much against Ilkay Gundogan. Um, so so yeah. I think that yeah he he does he does fit in well to what Hansi Flick wants. Uh, Hansi Flick said as much when when he took over that Ilkay Gundogan was an important player for him, and yeah, you can see why. Yeah, do you think um, just going into the tournament, do you think Gundogan's more likely to be uh, to be starting from the bench? I think that Gundogan will start alongside Kimmich. I such such is the way that Hansi Flick is. Has has gone about it in in the last year or so. I think that it's still more likely for me that that Goretzka will be on the bench. Goretzka has come back from injury, has looked very strong for Bayern, and th- there is a big argument of wanting to build uh, a strong Bayern axis in this team, uh, a Bayern block as as it's called. Um, albeit they don't really have any defenders um, in in the team anymore. They do have Manuel Neuer who's been coming back, and I think that. There is there is something to the argument of saying, well, having Kimmich and Goretzka, two players who know each other and, and know where where each other uh, are on the pitch and positionally does have an advantage to it. But I think that Hansi Flick rates Ilkay Gundogan so highly that he'll still place him alongside Kimmich. The question is, is whether that will be enough to prevent the counterattacks, which Germany have looked susceptible to. And it, I think it's a general accusation you can make of Hansi Flick's teams as well, um, particularly at Bayern. He went so aggressive that it left such space in behind. And whilst this is not on Ilkay Gundogan, he doesn't have uh, Alfonso Davies, uh, aka the roadrunner, to help sweep things up. Um, Julian Nagelsmann has used Leroy Sane at corners to prowl on the halfway line with Alfonso Davies as if to put up a big sign which has said no counter-attacking <laughs> um, but yeah I think that it's 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 one of the key issues or, or one of the big questions is who will start alongside Kimmich but I don't think it will equally decide Germany's success in, in this tournament they've got other areas of the team where they don't have uh, the same strength and depth like they do in central midfield yeah. Um, just a quick word on uh, the goalkeepers as well, because you uh, you mentioned Manuel Neuer there. Um, there'll mm-hmm. be a few City fans listening to this uh, who have seen a couple of performances this season from Stefan Ortega, who has been uh, pretty good. Uh, we're not expecting him to be called up. Um, Germany have a real strength in that uh, in that department as well, don't they? So that, that's mainly why uh, why Ortega is not likely to be uh, to be around, isn't it? Yeah. If you compare it to England, uh, I think that uh, I think that Stefan Ortega would be in the England squad were he in uh, were he uh, were he English, um, because yeah, there is real strength and depth in in that department in Germany. Let alone having Mark Andre Stegen as your number two, and he's the number one at Barcelona, or Kevin Trapp, who is in the form of his life for Eintracht Frankfurt. Adds to that, Bernd Leno at Fulham, who is still seen as being in the mix alongside Oliver Bauman uh, at Hoffenheim. I think I would place Ortega above Bauman, but un- unless there is a freakish run of injuries, I think that Stefan Ortega won't make the squad. He he does offer something uh, 
more than I'd say Kevin Trapp with his feet and, and with his distribution. Um, but I think just in terms of shot stopping ability, in terms of yeah, the the form that, that Trapp has been in, for example. I mean, I track Frankfurt fans sing about uh Neuer being on the bench because Trapp should be number one. Um, which I, I think is is exaggerating it a bit, but still I, I can't see a way past those those top goalkeepers that yeah. Um, just finally, then Archie. Um, just looking at Germany's chances in this uh, in this tournament. Where where do you rate them? Could could City fans be seeing Gundogan coming back with a with a medal at the end of the tournament? Well, the question is: Are you going to see it as coming back with a medal at the end of the tournament, or are you going to see it as oh, he's played so many games? How many <laughs> is he going to be able to play for us? Is he going to play for us on Boxing Day? Yeah, um, it's not not necessarily a disaster if some of these teams go out early, is it? Yeah, <laughs> right. I. Look, the group is tough. Uh, I think that that Japan um, have have some real dangerous players. Um, have some really dangerous players, and Spain as well. I'd pick them to be maybe a touch stronger than than Germany right now. Partly, partly, I think maybe out of the fact that it's the grass is always greener. There's not much. There's I'd say quite a few German players who are not in great form right now. But form. International level for your club doesn't have to be all that telling a factor. I think that Germany will get out their group. I would, I'd expect quarterfinal or semi-final, but I don't expect this team to win. Get involved with the debate on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. That was Archie Ryan talk, talking about Germany's uh, chances at the World Cup. Um, I, I, again, Dan, it seems like we're doing a show about how City players <laughs> are not necessarily the best ones in their position for the country. And like again, like City are always lauded as the best team in the world, and like like best team in the world, but without the best players, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> make it make sense. <laughs> Well, yeah, I guess we're uh, we're more than the sum of our parts. And in that case, <laughs> as the old the old cliche goes, which is uh, you know we've paid a lot of money to be more than the sum of our parts. But fair enough, yeah, yeah. Gundogan is key to City this season. Um, like he's he's again like De Bruyne, maybe one of those players that you don't really know what you've got until it's gone. Yeah, I mean, I, I love Gundo. I really do. I mean, I've said that about pretty much every player we've spoken about on this this podcast so far. Um, but I do, I do, and but I do wonder whether he is actually in City's best eleven most of the time. Um, he, he's obviously been made captain this season, which is um, a big showing of, of how much he's appreciated at the club and how much the players respect him. But I don't know if I would necessarily put him on the in the starting eleven of City's best eleven most of the time. I'm I'm always kind of happy to see him play and. You know, he he scored those vital goals at the end of last season against Aston Villa, and will be a, a City legend forever for that reason. Um, and and does chip in with the, with the odd goal. Um, you know, his best season in that respect was the, was the lockdown season, of course, when he was playing a, a slightly different role, and he, he seems to be playing a bit a bit deeper when he when he plays nowadays. Um, he's just a very silky, uh, technically brilliant footballer, very intelligent player, very intelligent person. Um, you know, and I never sort of wince when I see him on the team sheet or anything like that. I just think. For me personally, our two best midfielders are De Bruyne and Bernardo with, with Gundogan slightly behind them. And that's kind of the case at Germany as well, although Gundo is a starter for Germany um, and, and he is appreciated as a player here. I don't think he's necessarily seen as the star of the show. He's just kind of one of many sort of technically good midfield players that they've got there. So um, I think he'll I think he'll be a starter for them and play, play a good role at the World Cup, but I don't think he's, uh, he's sort of the... Uh, 
the poster boy for Germany necessarily. Yeah. Uh, contracts extension, what do you reckon? End of the season, these contracts up? I hope so. I hope so. But then there's been a lot of talk about Jude Bellingham to City recently. And if that is, uh, if there's any truth to that, and if City are serious about getting Bellingham done, then uh, you wonder whether that would be a, a replacement for Gundogan and whether they would they would let him go somewhere else on, on a free transfer. You know, it's been a, a great, what, six years he's been at City. Um, he's been a superb signing for you know, pretty much a bargain in comparison to, to a lot of players we bought. Um, yeah, he's been fantastic. He's had he's had his big moments. Um, he's been a great leader for the club. So I hope he stays. But um, if he goes, I think it would be a nice uh, a nice ending to his time at the club as well. Yeah, just uh, just very quickly then, money where your mouth is time. Who's going to win the bet, do you think? Spain or, or Germany to finish higher in the group? <laughs> Spain, I think. Yeah. Um, and uh, just to finish, Dan, uh, there's there's obviously been a lot of discussion about this World Cup from um, a, a physicality point of view for the players, uh, from a logistics point of view for, for the leagues and cramming it into the middle of a season, uh, but also from an ethical point of view based on uh, human rights in Qatar and the exploitation of migrant workers, that sort of thing. Um, how are you feeling about this tournament? Will you, will you be kind of engaging with it much beyond what you have to do for work or will you be watching it as kind of uh, as leisure as well as uh, as work? I don't. I don't know yet, really. I don't know how I'm going to feel about it. I mean, to be perfectly honest, if if it was cancelled tomorrow, I'd be quite happy, both in a kind of professional and personal capacity. I'm not really that looking forward to it. And um, you know, I like international football during the summer, outside of the the main season. I don't like the fact that it's interrupting the main season. You know, we feel like we're we're sort of really getting into the thick of the season now, and it's just being taken away from us, which which always annoys me when it's just a two week international break, never mind a six world six week World Cup break, which could have a knock on effect here and there. And of course there is also the um the guitar the guitar element, which is, you know, leaves a really, really bad taste in the mouth, you know, the the uh, the the amount of people that have, that, have, that have died, you know, building these stadiums, getting this World Cup on, um, the uh, attitude to um, LGBTQ people, and and all that kind of thing that goes with this tournament, you know, it's I don't think it's it's hypocritical as a City fan to say that you know that uh, that leaves a real sour taste in the mouth. Um, I think it's something that every football fan feels going into this and. And it, it feels very strange, and I, I've got a feeling we're going to look back on this World Cup as a kind of real, like, what the hell was all that about moment, you know? Yeah. Given the the sort of photographs that have come out from Qatar and the way that the the fan parks have been built and things like that, it just looks like it's going to be a pretty horrible experience for anyone going to watch it. And um, yeah, I just, I'm just I'm just not keen on any of it really, to be quite honest with you. So maybe when when the tournament gets into the swing of things, I'll I'll get into it as well, and I'll, I'll you know I'll I'll start enjoying it. Um, you know, it's going to be, I guess it's going to be nice having four or five football matches to watch each day, and and that that sort of thing that comes with every World Cup. But I'm not really that excited about it, if I'm being perfectly honest. Yeah, um, I kind of, I, I kind of wonder how much this this World Cup sums up um, kind of the the position where we are with football and, and politics and FIFA and all that sort of stuff. Because uh, like the situation in the run up as well, I don't think it's been handled particularly well. Um, like the, the criticism of the World Cup, and like it's absolutely fine to to criticize the World Cup for for what it is and where it is and and all that sort of stuff. And I think, uh, for instance, you know, as a gay fan myself, um, mm-hmm. I think the I think the UK government, for instance, didn't cover themselves in glory with their advice to to gay fans. I think I think I think the advice genuinely should be to LGBT fans: you, you shouldn't go to the tournament. And as much as, as as Qatar, you know, says it welcomes everybody and and says that all fans will be will be uh, treated fine and well, 
it's it's one of the things where I think I, I do think the Foreign Office needs to be a lot stronger in their messaging about what about what the situation is and and and, and how and how you can engage with the tournament. And I don't think it's I don't think it's the wrong advice to tell people who are LGBTQ not to go to Qatar. And so when when you look at, at things like the statement that that FIFA put out, um, you know, recently about uh, asking us to focus on the football and not not drag football through politics all the time, um, it, it's impossible, isn't it? You can't separate football and politics. No, absolutely not. And they would they would love us to just focus on the football and and uh, you know ignore all the kind of murky things that have been going on. You know, I, I don't think it's it's a controversial thing to say that Qatar shouldn't have been awarded this World Cup, and I think it has been you know very very corrupt uh, all of the everything that's gone on gone on around it. Um, but I do think at the same time, you know, we kind of we do need to be a bit careful about how we discuss that part of the world you know that culture is very very different to ours and um you know there's a lot of it that we that we don't understand and i think people almost see that part of the world as like an you know evil empire at times yeah, and i yeah. think that's that, that's that's wrong as well you know uh, you know it's uh, it's a very complex um matter and you know this is pure sports washing isn't it i don't I'm not a huge fan of that word. I do think it has lost a lot of meaning over the years, but I think it's totally applicable here. You know, that this is that's exactly why Qatar um, have paid all this money for the World Cup to, to kind of, you know, launder their image in the, in the eyes of the world. And, you know, Russia did the exact same thing in 2018, but a lot of people were, were kind of happy or didn't really pay much attention to that because, you know, they're a predominantly white country. And uh, I think that comes into it as well. So it's a really complex issue. And, I, you know, like we always say with these things, when when we talk about city's owners, like as fans, we should just be able to enjoy football kind of guilt free, really. And it's it's really disappointing and and unfair that we have to shoulder these kind of ethical quandaries all the time. But that's uh, that's the world we live in, unfortunately. Yeah, it's modern life, isn't it? That uh, mm-hmm. that brings us to the end of this World Cup edition of the Blue Moon Podcast. Thank you very much to my guest, to Dan Burke. Thank you very much. And thank you as well to every single one of the journalists and football experts that took time out of their schedules to speak to us for this show. It's an absolutely manic time ahead of the World Cup, so really appreciate that. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be back with our next show in the run-up to the Liverpool Carabao Cup tie, so expect to see us again in your podcasts app around about the 20th of December. See you then. Take care. That was the Blue Moon Podcast. Please give the show a rating and a review where you can. And don't forget, you can listen without the ads by signing up to our Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. And join us again next time for another episode. <laughs>